and welcome to Relevant History. I'm Dan Toller. When you look around the world, you sometimes see smaller countries that punch above their weight in one respect or another. The most obvious sense uh, is militarily, right? Uh, You think of a country like Israel, very small, relatively small population, and yet time and again has come out on top in military conflicts with larger neighbors. When you think diplomatically, you might think of a country like Belgium. The headquarters of NATO is there. The International Criminal Court is there. A lot of international institutions that give Belgium a clout on the world stage that is more than you would expect for a fairly small country with a small population. But there are also countries that have punched above their weight in the sense of historical impact. Small events in relatively out-of-the-way places, as many of us might think of them, that nonetheless create a butterfly effect that has a massive influence on world events. And if you're looking for a small nation that has a monumental impact on history, it would be very hard to think of a better example than Serbia. Serbia is a small, landlocked nation in Eastern Europe. It's in the Balkans, right? Those mountains uh, just north of Greece. And over the years, as with many countries, there have been many incarnations of Serbia, but one can basically divide Serbia as an independent country, at least, into two categories. Uh, There was the medieval Serbian kingdom that was founded in the 1200s and expanded over the next couple of centuries to form a small empire in the Balkans. But that was not a safe part of the world to be in at that time. See, the Ottoman Empire had taken over the Middle East, and in the year 1453... They successfully conquered the city of Constantinople, and the remnants of the Byzantine Empire were wiped out. Uh, It only took them, the Ottomans, six years after that to conquer the small Serbian Empire. And from 1459 onwards, the Kingdom of Serbia ceased to exist. It was instead renamed as the Sanjak of Smederevo. That's a type of district in the Ottoman Empire. And the capital was located in Belgrade. And so it would remain for a little over 300 years. But we're not here to talk about the first kingdom of Serbia or the Serbian Empire. We're here to talk about the modern nation of Serbia. And that nation 
has its beginnings in the late 1700s. Now, just to the north of the Balkans, you had the border of the Austrian Empire, sometimes called the Austria-Hungarian Empire, during much of this time referred to as the Holy Roman Empire. For simplicity's sake, I'm just going to call it the Austrian Empire throughout, so we know what we're talking about. And the Austrian Empire and the Ottoman Empire are rivals. They're sort of the Michigan and Ohio State football programs of geopolitics for a few hundred years. And in the year 1788, the Austrians were winning a war against the Ottomans. During this war, they successfully conquered the Sanjak of Smederevo. Now, this was only a temporary conquest. Right? It would only remain in Austrian hands during the war. And when the Austrians and the Ottomans ultimately made peace in the year of 1792, the Sanjak of Smederevo was returned to the Ottoman Empire. However, many of the local Serbian people had fought in the Austrian army, hoping for their own liberation of sorts. Uh, keep in mind uh, that the Ottoman Empire is a Muslim power, uh, still technically a caliphate, and the Serbian people are almost all Orthodox Christians. Not entirely, but something on the order of 90% of Serbian people at this time are Orthodox Christians. And what they see is that uh, Orthodox Christians within the Austrian Empire are treated much better than Orthodox Christians within the Ottoman Empire. This is surprising to them because the Austrian Empire is a fiercely Roman Catholic power. And there has been a lot of bad blood over the years between uh, the Roman Catholic Church and the Eastern Orthodox Church and peoples uh, dominated by those two religions. But by the 1700s, things have changed a whole lot since the Middle Ages, and the Austrians are taking a little bit more pragmatic approach to their religious minorities. Uh, so the Orthodox Christians living in the Austrian part of the Balkans actually have a large degree of religious freedom. Now, this isn't true throughout the entire Austrian Empire, right? By modern standards, we would consider the Austrian Empire as a whole to be fairly regressive. Uh, there is no freedom of the press or freedom of speech, for instance, and there's no freedom of religion. But in these Balkan areas that are highly orthodox, uh, there's an exception to that rule. This area has been designated by the Austrians as what's called the military frontier. And in the military frontier system, uh, peoples living in the frontier have a whole lot of freedoms they don't have in the rest of the empire. Uh, primarily, they have the freedom of religion, and not only do they have the right to keep and bear arms, they're actually required to. 
because uh, the reason they get all of these freedoms is that if there's a war and you are one of the people living in the military frontier, you are called up to war automatically and you're going to be right there on the front lines. So these extra freedoms are somewhat of a double-edged sword, but it's something that the Serbian Orthodox people who've been living in the Ottoman Empire for centuries now, they could never have imagined having, say, religious freedom. So what happens when the war ends in 1792 is that many Serbs end up emigrating into the Austrian Empire, leaving uh, with or right behind the Austrian army and settling there, and uh, over the next decade, they did much better economically and uh, socially than their fellow Serbs on the other side of the border in the Ottoman Empire. Uh, needless to say, uh, when the Serbs inside the Sanjak of Smederevo in the Ottoman Empire, when they witnessed this, uh, it began to create a desire for political change. And another factor that created a desire for change was the way that the Sanjak of Smederevo was governed when the Ottomans retook it. See, the Sultan put the policing power of the Sanjak in charge of some troops called the Janissaries. The Janissaries had a unique history within the Ottoman Empire. A couple of episodes ago, we were talking about the concept of slave soldiers. Well, the Janissaries were yet another example of slave soldier. Starting sometime around the early 1400s, the Ottomans began the practice of capturing male children from uh, Christians against whom they made war and then raising up these children as slave soldiers to go fight against uh, the Christians. Now, in the early days, this was an elite corps of troops. Uh, for instance, when the Ottomans took Constantinople in 1453, there were something like 6,000 Janissaries at that battle, and that was all of them. Uh, but due to the expanding size both of the empire and of the growing number of troops needed to defend that empire, the Janissary Corps had expanded to tens of thousands of troops starting in the 1600s. When this happened, you saw what you usually see with elite military units. When they expand their membership, they stop being so elite. Right? If you're only taking a few thousand men, you can take the biggest, the strongest, the bravest, the cleverest, right? The rest of them can be called out to go be some other kind of slave or servant in the Ottoman Empire, just not Janissaries. When you need all the people you can get, you have to lower your standards. And another thing that happens over the centuries with the Janissaries is the same thing that happened with the slave soldiers uh, in the Abbasid Caliphate. 
when you hand the military power of the empire to a bunch of slaves, they stop behaving like slaves and start behaving like people with power because they have power. And the Sanjak of Smederevo is one area where this comes to a head. It happens in 1801, and the event that kicks things off, as is so often the case, it's a trivial incident on the face of it. A Serbian police officer failed to pay a bribe to a Janissary in western Serbia, and the Janissary murdered him. And when local Serbs protested and demanded that this Janissary be arrested, the local Janissary commanders refused to act. So after hearing complaints from a number of Serbs, the ordinary non-Janissary governor of the Sanjak uh, leads an army of 600 regular troops to restore order uh, in this city where the assault has taken place, the, the city of Sabak. This is basically all of the regular troops in the Sanjak, right? The rest of the policing power has been relegated to the Janissaries. Uh, so while he's able to restore order in this one city and has the offending Janissary executed, uh, he is not able to preserve himself. And as soon as he returns home and uh, is not protected by 600 men, uh, he himself is murdered by the Janissary leaders uh, from around the province. And they actually try to justify this politically. They release a public statement uh, for the consumption of the Turkish people, not for Serbian consumption, but uh, their take is that this governor, Hadzi Mustafa Pasha, had been a false Turk, since he had sided uh, with the Serbians unjustly against this poor Janissary, and uh, that he had now, quote, received his reward. And in response, the Sultan sends a new governor. But this new governor clearly knows what's going on, and for all intents and purposes, the Sanjak of Smederevo is now under Janissary rule. And to understand why this would be problematic, understand also by this point that the Janissaries are no longer just a force of enslaved former Christians, right? Again, there's too many of them for that to be practical. Uh, most of them at this point are in the Janissaries on a hereditary basis. The Janissaries are living in giant barracks uh, where before they were expected to be celibate. Now they live in these barracks with their families and to believe some of these stories, uh, even with prostitutes. Uh, and uh, they already have uh, a very luxurious lifestyle compared to the actual average population. But when they see a province that is literally completely under Janissary control, 
their response is very similar to how many of the Serbs responded when they saw how much better things were over in Austria. A bunch of Janissaries from surrounding territories, whether they're supposed to or not, come into the Sanjak of Smederevo. Here's how 19th century German historian Leopold von Ranke describes this migration. He says, quote, When the Bosnians and Albanians, meaning the Bosnian and Albanian Janissaries in neighboring territories, heard of the success of the Janissaries, they flocked to Belgrade in great numbers, Half-naked men, and such as had previously borne burdens, now rode on Arabian steeds, attired in velvet, gold, and silver, haughty in their bearing towards all, and completely submissive to their masters alone. This force was employed not so much as a military body as to carry into execution the orders of the Janissaries. The system resembled that which was followed in Egypt, where the Mamelukes united at Cairo had appropriated the country according to its districts among themselves and ruled it by means of their kaschifs, carrying little for the authority of the Pasha who had been sent from Constantinople. But here, meaning in Serbia, they went even further. Perhaps the greatest difference in Serbia was that the Janissaries aimed at establishing themselves as lords of the soil. They claimed the actual proprietorship of the land, and from time to time built themselves stately country houses. Besides the former taxes, they demanded the ninth part of the earth's produce, and forced the inhabitants to perform feudal service. Such of the Safis, which is Serbian for dukes, as would not come to terms with them were expelled. In opposition to the new regulations of the Sultan, the intention of which was to place the power of the government in the hands of one person, Another system, of a tendency directly opposite, was forming itself in Serbia based upon abuses and personal violence, which it had been the aim of the Sultan to abolish. And woe to the man who, within the territories of the usurping chiefs, should venture to oppose them. Unquote. What von Ranke is saying there is that it's not that the Sultan doesn't want to rein in the Janissaries, it's that the Sultan can't rein in the Janissaries. They are more powerful than the regular army. And the Serbian situation is by no means unique throughout the Ottoman Empire. The situation with the Janissaries gets to be so intolerable that a generation later, in 1826, the Sultan would officially disband them. And he would do this in an incident called the Auspicious Incident. Knowing that the Janissaries would try to launch a coup if he disbanded them, he set a trap. And when he announced that the Janissaries were being disbanded, their leaders were arrested, and ultimately those who resisted were all executed. But that would be a generation later, right now in the late 17, very early 1800s. The Ottoman Empire is severely weakened and cannot even police its own military. Nonetheless, in 1801, 
the Serbian leaders meet and uh, send an appeal to the Sultan asking for help with this Janissary situation. And he sends a response. Now, his response is fascinating given this situation at the time. I should also mention that not only are the Janissaries very powerful, but the regular army, in addition to this, is tied down with the Napoleonic Wars. Uh, This is right around the time when Napoleon is invading Egypt. Uh, And the Sultan knows that the regular army can't do anything, and he knows the Janissaries know this. So what he says in his message back to the Serbian leaders is that It would be wrong for him to send Muslims to fight the other Muslims. So if the Janissaries do not submit to his governor, he will send a non-Muslim army to fight the Janissaries. The obvious conclusion that the Janissary leaders draw when they find out about this message is that the Sultan is planning to raise a Serbian army against them. In fact, he probably was, but before anything like that could happen, uh, in early 1804, the Janissaries acted first. In an event that would come to be called the Slaughter of the Kinesis, they would slaughter 72 of the highest-ranking Serbian leaders, and hundreds to thousands of others. Hard to say exactly how many. But Leopold von Ranke describes the incident as follows. Quote, It was in February 1804 that the Dahis commenced this work of horror, each one in his own division of the country. At first, their design was accomplished without difficulty— As soon as either they or their bailiffs entered a village, the inhabitants as usual advanced to meet them, to supply them with food or to take charge of their horses. This offered them a convenient opportunity for seizing whomsoever they chose. They were not satisfied with getting rid of the Knessa and the Knicks, those are types of Serbian leaders, but every person of any consideration, whether it had been acquired by military prowess, eloquence, or wealth, was put to death. Horror prevailed throughout the country. Men knew not who were doomed. The belief gained ground that it was intended to extirpate the entire population. Even the poorest feared for his life. In the villages, none but old men and children went forth to meet the Turks. The able-bodied fled to the mountains, into the hiding places." Now, the intention of this massacre was to preempt the possibility of an organized Serbian army, right? Decapitate any kind of potential leadership, kill anybody who might be a rallying point, and you don't have a civil war to deal with later on. In fact, the massacre backfires spectacularly, right? As we saw from von Ranke, the able-bodied men of fighting age uh, fled deep into uh, mountain hiding places. And there, the surviving chiefs would unite uh, 
and they would elect a leader who would become one of the two major founding figures of modern-day Serbia. And that man is a man named Dord Petrovic. Petrovic has humble origins. He was not born as a leader of a nation or even of a village. He was born into a poor family in central Serbia. Uh, his father was what's called a hadjuk, which was an irregular guerrilla soldier, uh, sometimes could also be a bandit. Uh, these hadjuks were not always employed in 100% legal soldiering, but his father had settled down from his hajuk lifestyle and become a farmer. Uh, and in 1788, at the outbreak of that war between Austria and Turkey, uh, Petrovic, a young man, had joined the Free Corps. Uh, the Free Corps being a militia made up from Serbs both in Austria and in the Ottoman Empire. Uh, in the uh, Sanjuk of uh, Smedrevko. Now, Petrovic may have entered the war as a common soldier, but because of his bravery and his natural talent for leadership, he rose within the ranks, and by the time the war ended, uh, when the Austrians withdrew in 1792, Petrovic was commanding his own squad of 15 men. And at that time, Petrovic was still enamored with the idea of Serbian independence from the Ottoman Empire. So he fought briefly as a hadjuk, as his father had, as an anti-Ottoman guerrilla. But soon he and his family were forced to flee the country, and they ended up living in a monastery in Austria for about 18 months. He was able to work there as a forester, basically a groundskeeper. Uh, and in 1794, when the Ottoman governor declared an amnesty, uh, Petrovic and his wife and children were able to move back uh, into the Sanjak of Smederevo. Now, as a respected uh, leader, Petrovic uh, became successful in business as well. He became a livestock trader. And he also kept his soldiering skills sharp during this time. Uh, in 1796, there had been an earlier rebellion by some Janissaries, a, another rebellion that we just kind of skipped over. Uh, and in that rebellion, Petrovic had led uh, not a single squad, but a hundred men. Uh, he had also gained a nickname that would stick with him through his whole life, and that nickname is Caradord, which translates in English to Black George. Uh, this referred mostly to his temperament. Caradord uh, was not known as a jovial fellow. As a matter of fact, as a commander, he was known for being extraordinarily strict. During his career, he would execute personally uh, over 120 people that we know of, whether for 
cowardice or any number of reasons, uh, and, and these were just executions he himself carried out. Uh, he would also order the execution of his own brother at one point. Now, from all appearances, his brother may very well have raped somebody, so you could say that this particular execution, uh, at least by the standards of the time, was well-deserved. Nonetheless, uh, his response to the execution of his brother uh, was a bit disturbing. Uh, See, as his brother's body is hanging lifeless just outside of his camp, he hosts a meeting with other militia leaders who literally have to pass under the body of his dead brother to enter the camp. That's the kind of fellow who gets the nickname Black George. But enough about Caridord's past. Let's talk about what he's going to do now that the Janissaries have slaughtered most of the Serbian leaders, and he is in command. Well, in February of 1804, there are roughly 30,000 Serbian militia troops. This is not enough to do anything but fight a guerrilla war, besides which, again, these are guerrillas, right? These are not regular troops. They don't have things like artillery, at least, you know, not in the quantities they would need, with the supplies they would need. This this is a ragtag group of people. Uh, so this militia, rather than do anything stupid, uh, decides to once again appeal to Sultan Salim for help. And this time around, the Sultan responds not just with a letter, but with 7,000 troops from the neighboring district of Bosnia. Again, much fewer troops than are in the militia, but comparatively better equipped, better supplied, uh, and just as importantly, coming with the Sultan's blessing. And when these troops first enter the Sanjak of Smederevo, the Serbs greet them as liberators. After all, they're coming to reinforce the sultan's benevolent rule and get rid of these janissaries who are oppressing them. But meanwhile, actors outside the Ottoman Empire are trying to turn this situation to their advantage. Uh, The Austrians have been sending weapons and ammunition and other supplies across the border to these Serbian militias, uh, and the Russians have been lobbying the Sultan on their behalf. Uh, This is not the first or the last time that the Russians would lobby on behalf of Orthodox peoples uh, from within the Ottoman Empire. The rights of Orthodox Christians in the Empire were often a bone of contention here. So you could see how this lobbying may not have been taken warmly when it was not the first or the last time from the Ottoman perspective that the Russians had meddled in their affairs. Uh, Nonetheless, the 7,000-man army from Bosnia achieves their goal. They put down the Janissary Rebellion, 
And at this point, Caradord asks the Sultan for a favor. He asks him to grant semi-autonomous status to the Serbians. Now, this in and of itself is not unprecedented. Uh, there's a neighboring district called Wallachia where that is already the case. The Wallachians pay taxes to the Ottoman Empire, but other than that, they basically run their own affairs. Uh, and this is what Caradord uh, is asking for. But Sultan Selim believes this is a prelude to a demand for total independence. Right? Remember, not too long ago, this area of Serbia, the, the, the Sanjak of Smederevo, had been under Austrian control, and many of the Serbs had fought to keep things that way. And after all, who had been arming these Serbian militias but the Austrians... So rather than grant Caradord's request, or even continue negotiating different terms, the Sultan declares a jihad against the Serb militias. And here's how von Ranke elaborates on that. He says, quote, that the Raja, meaning subject peoples here, whose part it was to serve, should arm themselves and thus assume an equality with the followers of the dominant religion, was intolerable to the Muslims of both parties, the reformers as well as those who adhered to the old system. And it was also contrary to the very fundamental laws of the country, to the very nature of the caliphate, and to the supreme authority itself. Unquote. What von Ranke is describing is a situation where the sultan needs to assert dominance here in order to maintain political legitimacy in this combined religious political state that the caliphate is, right? And it's very important that he do this at a time when his rule is so vulnerable, right? Again, this is not the only time and place he's dealing with these Janissaries. But what happens when the Sultan couches this insurrection in terms of religion is that he immediately causes events on the ground to fracture along religious lines. Previously to this call for jihad, this had been mostly a cultural matter, right? Some of the Serbs, about 10% of them, in the militias were Muslims. They weren't upset because they were living in a Muslim caliphate. They were upset because of the Janissaries. Well, now all of a sudden, these Muslim militiamen are being divided from the 90% of militiamen who are you know, mostly Orthodox Christians. And dividing the militia in this way does somewhat degrade their strength, but it also has an unintended side effect. And that is that as this rebellion continues, you will see pogroms conducted against Muslims. And 
they will be killed or expelled from their homes. You know, oftentimes their homes burnt to the ground behind them. Um, and these pogroms ultimately would extend not even just to Muslims, but to anybody who failed to actively aid the resistance. In the spring of 1805, the Sultan sends a neighboring Ottoman governor, a man named Hafiz Pasha, to handle this rebellion. Now, the Serbs are anticipating an attack along uh, the borderline here between the two provinces, but they're not sure exactly where the attack is going to come, right? There are two places where there are river crossings. One is at a village called Kupriha, and then there's another village about two miles downstream called Ivankovac. Uh, Karador divides his army, and he takes the main position guarding Kupriha uh, and leaves a contingent of about 2,500 men to guard the village of Ivankovac. The Ottomans end up crossing the river at the more lightly defended Ivankovac. Their forces attack all day, but the Serbs manage to hold their side of the river. None of the Ottomans are able to establish a beachhead, uh, and when nightfall comes, uh, they remain at a standoff. And what happens next is something that you'll see a lot in military history. In this case, the stronger side, the Ottomans, they become complacent. They set up a couple of guards, and they all go to sleep for the night. But the Serbs don't have that luxury, right? The Serbs at Ivankovac are severely outnumbered. They don't know if Karadord's Half of the army is going to get there in time for morning. They have to do something. So, after nightfall, after the Ottomans have gone to bed, they quietly sneak across the river and launch a counterattack. Now, they're not able to fully defeat the Ottoman force, but what happens is Hafiz Pasha is wounded by a grenade in the leg. And with Karadord's main force having been alerted and rushing to the response, uh, Pasha knows he's going to be facing much worse odds the next morning. Uh, so the Ottomans retreat during the night, and Pasha would ultimately die of his wounds within a few days. With this Ottoman relief force temporarily defeated uh, the rebels are able to focus on the main Ottoman force in the Sanjak of Smederevo which is the garrison in Belgrade and that garrison is now under siege by 17,000 Serbian rebels and the rebels are also dominating the countryside. Remember, the Ottomans at this point are either outside the Sanjak of Smederevo or they're stuck in 
the garrison in Belgrade. So, other than that, the militias pretty much have the run of the place. Uh, Caridord uh, continues leading his men in battle personally, uh, even leading cavalry charges by himself. And at this point in 1805, the sultan does what he probably should have done to begin with and offers the semi-autonomous status uh, that Caridord had asked for. But a couple of things had changed in the last year. For one thing, the Serbian militias had actually been pretty effective uh, in battle. And the other thing, perhaps more important, is that a war broke out in early 1706 between the Ottomans and the Russians. And this Russo-Ottoman war caused the rebels to become overconfident. Uh, Caridord again sends an offer for peace, but this time he ups the ante. He wants... Wallachia-style autonomy, right? Not just semi-autonomy. He wants to have, say, a Serbian prince. Uh, and the sultan is on the verge of agreeing. But the Russians suffer a setback of their own. See, just as this war has broken out with the Ottomans, the Russians are already at war with France. Uh, France at this time being run by Napoleon, uh, France is going to war with a lot of people uh, during this decade, and it is affecting everything else in the world because uh, France is so powerful at the time on the European continent that if you're Russia or Austria or even the Ottoman Empire you don't make any foreign policy decision before asking yourself, well, what is Napoleon going to think about this? Um, and in this case, uh, the Russians can't really commit a lot of troops to their war with the Ottomans because most of their army is tied up up in Europe. Uh, and with the threat of Russia subdued, at least for now, uh, the sultan digs his heels in. But he's not really able to do anything quite yet, uh, and the rebel advances continue. In early 1807, the Ottoman garrison in Belgrade is forced to finally surrender. Now, Caridord's men promise that they will receive safe passage out of the Sanjak of Smederevo, but as soon as the Ottomans have left the fortress, uh, the Serbians ambush and massacre them. But at this point, the Serbs now truly control all of Serbia. There are no Ottoman troops left, at least not in any significant numbers, uh, and low-level warfare goes on for the next two years, while the sultan tries to muster a coherent response. And that response comes in 1809, when the Ottomans launch a full-on invasion. But at this point, the Russians are now neutral with France, so they also have troops to commit, and over the next three years, uh, 
Serbia and neighboring Bulgaria are essentially a battleground for these two empires to go at it. Now, the Serbian rebels fight bravely, but their leadership is divided. Caridord uh, has never been in complete command. He's sort of been first among equals, and the other leaders are starting to fear that he's becoming too dictatorial, that maybe he even has some ambitions of kingship. So other generals start refusing to cooperate with him, and this makes it impossible for the Serbs to have any sort of large-scale military action with their entire force acting together, right? Again, this is a small country. If you're taking an already small military and dividing it in three or four pieces, you're not going to stand a chance against anybody uh, bigger than you. And in the year 1812, the Napoleonic Wars once again intervene in all this. Napoleon invades Russia with what is, at the time, the largest army ever assembled, probably ever, and certainly outside of China. And against this army, the Russians have to have all of their defenses available. Tsar Alexander I negotiates a quick peace, and with the Ottomans able to devote their full attention to the Serbian problem, Caridord and his 100,000 Serbian fighters flee the country to seek refuge in the Austrian Empire. The rebellion is not even defeated in the field, it melts away. And in part, this is also because other leaders are also giving up in their own way. For instance, a leader named Milos Obrenovich, one of Caridord's rivals, uh, surrenders a full third of the rebel army in exchange for personal amnesty. And despite some remaining scattered resistance, the Ottoman army retakes Belgrade in 1813. And at that time, there are reprisals, both for the rebellion and for the pogroms against Muslims. All the men of Belgrade, over the age of 15, are either killed or enslaved, and the women are raped. Churches are burned, and there's even a mosque burned when some people seek sanctuary in it. Regardless, this marks the end of what historians call the first Serbian uprising. But, as you'll see, it's only the first part of what we now call the Serbian Revolution. For the time being, the Ottomans are back in charge. They quickly mop up any remnants of the resistance, and what remains is to arrest some of the leaders. Uh, again, the Sultan is 
working with a policy of general amnesty, maybe a little bit down the road, but first rounding up uh, the most influential rebels to keep this sort of thing from happening again. And in addition to that, uh, the Sultan also needs some local leaders he can trust. And who better than one of the first senior leaders to surrender, uh, Milos Obrenovich. And he is given a position of leadership called Oborknes, which is Serbian for senior leader. That's a traditional Serbian title, and it's the one that Caridord had held before he ran off to Austria. This Ottoman policy is mostly effective, but there's a particular rebel leader who knows that he is not going to be one of those people on the amnesty list. Uh, This is a man named Hadzi Pronan. Rather than flee, he decides to fight. Uh, He raises a small rebellion in his district, but Milos Obrenovich stands by, uh, does not attempt to assist in this rebellion. Uh, he does not think the time is right so soon to try and rise up against the Ottomans again, uh, and Hadzi Pronin's rebellion is crushed. Uh, he himself survives, though, and flees to Austria, like Caridord. Um... The Ottoman reprisals after Hadzi Pronin's rebellion are even more severe than the reprisals after the first Serbian uprising. Taxes are raised on everybody across the board. Uh, The Ottomans begin uh, taking Serbs and forcing them into labor, uh, slavery basically, and mass rape is even being used as a tactic to terrorize the Serbian population. Ottoman troops go from house to house throughout Serbia, searching for and confiscating weapons. And one practice uh, that arouses particular ire Uh, is that they hired gypsies to force Serbians to undress to prove that they were unarmed. And apparently the payment that these gypsies would get for this service uh, to the Ottomans was that then they would get to keep the Serbians' good clothes uh, for themselves uh, and leave whoever they had been searching with nothing but a pile of rags. Uh, And interestingly, also as a side note, it's intriguing to see the sort of casual racism in this era uh, when the idea of a few people's clothes being stolen by some gypsies, of all things, was right up there on the list of grievances with mass rape. It gives you a window into the priorities people had at the time. And... I should point out that Obrenovich himself is a controversial figure because of the way he handled this situation. Right? Uh, 
Some Serbians consider him to be a coward for surrendering to the Ottomans and for standing aside during Hadzi Pronin's rebellion. Now, on the other hand, others see him as a pragmatist. What could he have done? He did what he could, when he could, and as we'll see, he was ultimately in most ways successful. But for now, he seems to have a lot to answer for. Right? We've talked about what the Turks are doing to the population. But there's eventually a particular incident that seems to motivate Abrenovich. It certainly galvanizes his fellow leaders. Here's what our friend Leopold von Ranke has to say on the subject. He says, quote, He, meaning Obrenovich, had given the first intelligence of the insurrection to Suleiman Pasha, at the same time informing him of his intention to suppress it, and he obtained the assurance that, if the insurgents would at once voluntarily surrender, no one should be harmed, with the exception of Hadzi Pronin, whom it was necessary to punish. But the Pasha's actions did not correspond with his words. The Kiaja of Suleiman did not arrive at Chatschuk, the place of rebellion, until after the complete restoration of order. But he nevertheless compelled the inhabitants to point out the ringleaders of the insurrection and carried them off with him in chains. Fortunately, Milo succeeded in preventing him from plundering the villages in Kragjewaz and Jagonida and leading off the inhabitants as slaves, by threatening to withdraw from him and to exert himself no further in tranquilizing the country. But these threats could not prevent the Kiaja from carrying away in chains the presumed ringleaders of the insurrection. It is true he again promised that his prisoners, although they would be made to suffer pecuniary loss and even corporal punishment, should not be put to death. But soon after his arrival with them at Belgrade, notwithstanding the promise given both by him and by the Pasha, the less influential of the prisoners, to the number of 150, were beheaded in front of the four gates of the city. The Igumen of Trinawa, with 36 others, were impaled. These were all young, high-spirited, and brave men of good descent, who had been amongst the first to join the insurrection, and whose influence in the country induced the Turks to put them to death. Unquote. Now, for those of you not familiar with impalement, it is a particularly drawn-out and painful way to die. It can sometimes take people longer than a day to fully be impaled and die. This is agony. And beyond the horrific nature of the death itself is the humiliation involved because of its history. Impalement has been used in the past in the Balkans as a form of intimidation. The fictional Count Dracula may be a pop culture phenomenon, but the real-world original, Vlad the Impaler, 
Well, it's in the name he impaled a whole lot of people. And while in old Vlad's case, it was Ottomans being impaled, the purpose was the same. Intimidation and humiliation. And in response to this mass execution and impalement, Obrenovich and the leading Serbs once again meet at a secret mountain fortress in March of 1815, and they take a vote. And the vote is to launch another rebellion. In response to this vote, Obrenovich famously says, Evomene edovas ratersima, which means, Here am I, here are you, war to the Turks. And to war they would go, as the Serbs began the Second Serbian Uprising. The Second Uprising was more successful than the First for a couple of reasons. Right? First, we already talked about the fact that Caridord was not able to maintain full control of the army. Abrenovich was, as one of the conditions of his leadership, he was not going to let other generals second-guess him in the field and move their armies where they wished. And the second reason that the Second Serbian Uprising was more successful is that at this point, Russia no longer has to worry about Napoleon. Even as the uprising is kicking off, Napoleon is in exile, and by June of 1815, Napoleon has returned from exile and been defeated at Waterloo and sent back into exile for the last time. Without worrying about him, the threat of Russian intervention looms large over this whole situation, and the Ottomans know that. Right. After their local garrisons inside of Serbia are defeated in a few quick battles, uh, Obrenovich sues for peace. And in November of 1815, right. within the year, the Sultan acknowledges Serbia as a semi-independent principality, and uh, a formal peace agreement is signed. Uh, under the terms of this deal... The Serbs will have the right to govern their own domestic affairs, uh, but the Principality of Serbia, as it is now to be called, no longer the Sanjak of Smederevo, the Principality of Serbia will pay an annual tax to the Ottomans, and there will be a token Ottoman garrison in Belgrade, but that's pretty much it. Now, since... The second Serbian uprising kicked off, right, for about the past year. Karadord has been furiously trying to get back into Serbia. Uh, after the first Serbian uprising, when he'd fled to Austria, uh, the Austrians had arrested him. He was, after all, a foreigner under arms in their country. Uh, they had arrested him and his followers and then sent them in exile to Russia. 
Now, the Russians will not let Caridord cross into Serbia because, for the Tsar's tastes, he's too extreme. Right? They don't need Serbia to be 100% independent, and they really don't want to go to war with the Ottomans again so soon. Again, right? At this point, Europe has been at war for like 20 years with Napoleon and the French Revolution before that. So if the Tsar can get what he wants, a semi-independent Serbia, without a single Russian soldier firing a shot, so much the better. Uh, so since Obrenovich seems to be doing quite fine on his own, uh, the Tsar will not let Karadord cross into Serbia. And Karadord becomes even more upset uh, when the peace deal is announced because the semi-autonomy that Obrenovich has just accepted is pretty much the same deal that Karadord had in 1807 and had rejected. He goes personally to St. Petersburg, which is the capital of Russia at the time, uh, to plead his case with Tsar Alexander and is again refused. And when you're refused personally by the Tsar, there's really nowhere else you can go, at least nowhere legitimate. So to get out of Russia and into Serbia, Karadur joins a Greek secret society called the Philikai Eteria, which is roughly translated as the Society of Friends. This isn't, you know, like the Shriners or something where you have a secret handshake and do some charity events and uh, get some discounts on drinks at the bar. This is a secret society with political ambitions. It is made up of local leaders and military officers from throughout the Balkans who wish to foment a broader rebellion against the Ottomans. And they are able to hook him up with some fellow Society of Friends members inside of Serbia, and Karadord and a single bodyguard secretly cross the border on the night of July 24, 1817. And there he meets with some Serbian officers who are supposedly willing to help him, but are actually working for Obrenovich. Uh, these officers send word to Obrenovich, who orders Karadord to be killed. And Karadord is murdered in his sleep with an axe. Um, after his death, he is then beheaded, and his head is sent to the Ottoman garrison commander in Belgrade. This commander, in turn, has the head tanned and stuffed and sent to the sultan as a personal gift. And so ended Karadord, one of the two founding fathers of Serbia, murdered by the orders of Milos Obrenovich, Serbia's other great founding father. And to add insult to injury... Karadord's bodyguard, a man named Nome Krenar, 
is shot in the back while gathering water from a stream. And a few months later, in November of 1817, Obrenovich decides to solidify his position, and he is officially crowned as the first Prince of Serbia. Now, for many countries, this would be more than enough founding mythology, but the events of the Serbian Revolution, as this whole period is called, are emblematic of two trends that would continue through the rest of the 1800s. The first is that Serbia, and other Balkan countries as well, are trapped between three empires. You've got the mostly Catholic Austrian Empire to the northwest. You have the Orthodox Russian Empire to the northeast. And to the south and southeast, you have the Ottoman Empire. And all of these empires want buffer states. They want a little bit of a barrier between themselves and these neighboring empires. But each of these empires wants the buffer states, these small countries in between, to be friendly to them. All three would be just fine with an independent Serbia or an independent Bulgaria, as long as Serbia or Bulgaria or whoever is in their pocket. Now, this leads to constant political meddling and maneuvering from outside. It's inherently unstable, and it's why the Balkans have the reputation that they do. Right, This reputation of being a part of the world that is frequently at war and even more frequently, in some kind of crisis. The second problem that Serbia would continue to have during the 1800s is that they have not one, but two founding heroes with different philosophies. Right, You have Caradord and his devil-may-care live-free-or-die attitude of complete independence, and you have the more restrained, maneuvering philosophy of Milos Obrenovic. And while Caridord himself is already dead at this point, both men would have children, and those children would form two dynasties that would switch back and forth over the course of the next century. Now, Obrenovich himself rules as a complete autocrat. Right, He has taken this position of total dictatorship from the military into peacetime. However, his policies are generally considered friendlier to the lower classes. Uh, For instance, his agricultural and tax policies very much favored smaller landholders over large estates. Now, 
At the same time, Abrenovich does become very wealthy in his own right. At the time of his death, he will have estates not just throughout the Principality of Serbia, but also in Austria and in the neighboring Principality of Wallachia. And controversially, he would maintain a personal monopoly on the salt trade, which was an important trade in Serbia at the time for many years. Obrenovich is a skilled diplomat and continues to advance the cause of Serbian independence during peacetime. In 1830, he will convince the Sultan to declare the position of Oborknez hereditary. In 1833, he will obtain additional land from the Ottomans, land that is populated by Serbs, uh, and add that land to the Principality of Serbia, all by diplomacy. Uh, however, his autocratic style is starting to rub other influential Serbs the wrong way, right? These are, at the end of the day, people who are accustomed to taking their orders from local leaders and not from a king. And... Under pressure from a number of Serbian nobles, Obrenovich adopts a constitution in 1835. And considering his dictatorial style, Obrenovich's constitution is surprisingly liberal. Uh, it creates an elected Senate, uh, and it also guarantees freedom of speech and freedom of the press, things that are virtually unheard of in Europe outside of revolutionary France. This constitution also finally places some limits on the powers of the prince himself. Uh, most importantly, uh, he is no longer to be the supreme judge of the land. Right? There's going to be a judiciary. What Abrenovich is trying to do here is create a constitutional monarchy rather than an absolutist one. But this does not sit well with any of the three surrounding empires. The Austrians, the Ottomans, the Russians, none of them like each other, but all three of them are absolute monarchies, authoritarian states. And just as revolutionary France, with its liberal constitution, was a threat to the authoritarian monarchies of Europe, a constitutional monarchy with civil rights here in the Balkans could start giving the subject peoples of these empires their own ideas about freedom. So all three empires demand that Milos abolish the constitution, and he does. Nevertheless, he does continue to respect the limits that the Constitution had placed on his office. He abolishes his monopoly on salt, and he stops acting as the Supreme Judge. Now, shortly thereafter, in 1838, the Ottomans would come back and force the Serbians to adopt a new Constitution. 
what this constitution was was sort of a compromise between authoritarian dictatorship and what we would call a a, a liberal democracy, right? Uh, there are no guarantees for freedom of the speech or freedom of the press uh, or what we would call civil rights. But there are a number of administrative reforms, including, most importantly, the creation of an elected Senate. Elections are held, and on January 13, 1839, the newly elected Serbian Senate demands Milo Sobrinovic's abdication. He famously says in response, If they will no longer desire to have me, it is well. I will not obtrude myself further upon them. And according to von Ranke, Obrenovich says not a word as he rides his horse across the Sava River into exile in Austria. And his response moves many senators to tears. The Senate does preserve the hereditary nature of the monarchy, though. Uh, Milos's son, Milan, becomes the new prince. Milan is sickly, though. He's suffered from tuberculosis since he was very small, and at this point in his life, he's in such a fragile state that he can't even be told of his father's abdication. His doctors think the shock might kill him, so he's told that Milos just rode off to Austria to do some business and that he is temporarily the prince while his father's away. And he dies 26 days later without ever learning the truth. And upon Milan's death, his younger brother, Mihailo Obrenovich, becomes prince in his stead. Uh, Mihailo, which is often anglicized as Michael, uh, is a young man. He's only 16 years old, and he has been royalty his entire life. Uh, prior to becoming prince, he spent time in Vienna with his mother. He is well-educated, uh, and he turns 17 a year later in 1840. And At that point, the Senate recognizes his majority, and he is ready to be prince in his own right. Now, all of this was controversial, right? When Milan died, a number of senators wanted someone from outside the Obrenovich family to be the new prince, but the position was hereditary, uh, so the job went to Mihailo. However, these senators, many of them, do manage to convince the sultan in his official decree naming Mihailo as prince to specifically not state that the position is hereditary. The Ottomans at this point place some further conditions on Mihailo's rule. The sultan appoints two ministers to advise him, and he is required to seek their advice before making any decisions. This runs against one of the prince's remaining prerogatives in the new constitution. He has the right, according to the constitution, to appoint or dismiss his own ministers at will. 
And when Mihailo arrives in Belgrade and the mayors and the nobility of the Serbian people are there to meet him and they hear about his Ottoman advisors, widespread protests break out. Now, this puts young Mihailo in a bind, right? If he dismisses the ministers, he's, on the one hand, asserting his own royal prerogative. On the other hand, he's just giving in to popular demand, right? He's, instead of setting the precedent that the sultan can appoint advisors, setting the precedent that the nobility and the mayors can have them fired, And, let's be honest, the Sultan's appointment of these advisors does come with an implicit threat. Even if he wants to, Mihailo may not necessarily be free to dismiss them. So, he sits on his hands and does nothing. Well, as so often happens when leaders do nothing the situation continues to deteriorate until, in 1842, one of the Serbian territorial governors, a man named Toma Vucic Perisic, revolts. On the basis that he is actually supporting the prince by opposing Ottoman interference. Now, what Vucic says is that he is only coming in arms to demand an audience with the prince, to convince him to get rid of these meddling Ottoman advisors, but it sure looks an awful lot like a rebellion, and Mihailo has superior military forces. He has the grudging support of most of the Serbian nobility and the Senate. After all, this is a young country, and Well, as my own country's founding fathers said in the United States, united we stand, divided we fall. So, the mostly united Serb army marches out to meet Vucic's rebels. But what happens twice is that Vucic's troops fire a few shots at them, and Mihailo's army retreats. The regular rank-and-file troops are simply not willing to fight against fellow Serbs. So, Mihailo is in a bind, right? The only way he can put down this rebellion, however small, would be to call on the Ottoman garrison for help. He's not willing to do that. So, rather than ask the Ottomans to fire on his fellow Serbs, Mihailo voluntarily joins his father in exile in Vienna. He ends up actually managing his father's estate while he's there. And a number of his followers ask to follow him into exile in Austria, but he refuses all of their offers. Uh, He says openly that he has no wish to reclaim the throne if it has to be done by violence. So, in 1842, the Serbian Senate holds an election. 
and their choice for the new prince is none other than Alexander Karadordovich, one of Karadord's sons. And Russia and Austria are both agreeable to this plan, which is good for the Serbian people, because any time you can get two out of the three big empires in the area on your side, you're doing all right. But the Ottomans were a little bit more nervous about uh, Alexander Karadordovich. Uh, for one thing, he was one of Mihailo Obrenovich's highest-ranking adjutants. So the Ottomans were concerned that he would simply return Mihailo to power in a few years and they'd be right back where they started. At the same time, especially with Austria and Russia firmly on Karadordovich's side, the Ottomans are not really in a position to simply demand that he step down. So what they do instead is say, hey, the Senate got to vote, but we haven't had an election by the people, and this is, after all, a constitutional monarchy here, right? So there is a popular election in 1843 for the very first time in Serbia. Ironically, the Serbian peasants got to vote for the first time thanks to the Ottomans. But the Ottomans' ploy didn't work because the Serbian people vote the same way their Senate did. They vote for Alexander Karadordovich. The Ottomans seem mollified, and to appease them even further, Karadordovich exiles Vucic and one of the other top rebel leaders to Russia. And once again, the Principality of Serbia is at peace and is only technically part of the Ottoman Empire. And so things might have remained, except in the year 1848, the entire European continent went through a series of convulsions. Now, these events, called collectively the Revolutions of 1848, are incredibly complicated and I would not be exaggerating at all if I said entire podcasts, as in series of hour-long episodes, have been dedicated just to the revolutions of 1848. So, I can't really explain everything here. Uh, instead, let's just talk about briefly how this impacted the situation in Serbia. What had happened was that the Napoleonic Wars of a generation prior had spread French armies throughout Europe. And these were not just any armies. These were people's armies, revolutionary armies. And they spread the ideas of the French Revolution, the Enlightenment, to all the countries in which they had a presence. And one of those places was the Austrian Empire. And the Austrian Empire was 
one of the more autocratic parts of Europe. In many ways, their economy was still feudal. Right? People were tied to the land and not allowed to leave or do anything other than whatever profession their father had done and paid taxes in kind to local lords. I mean, this is the 1800s and they're still running their society that way. It's not surprising that there was some pushback from the population. And there were several outbreaks of unrest in the Austrian Empire, but the one most significant place that unrest took root was in Hungary. Right? We think of Hungary today as its own independent country, but at this time it was part of the Austrian Empire and had been for some time. And in 1848, Hungary declared itself independent. But in an ironic twist, Hungary itself also had several regions that were not majority Magyar. Magyar being the proper name for the Hungarian people, right? These districts had other ethnic peoples who were the majority there. Uh, there were majority Croatian, majority Bosniak, and majority Serbian regions of Hungary. And when Hungary declared its independence from the Austrian Empire, these ethnic sub-regions declared their own independence from Hungary. This turned into a multi-sided civil war with the rebel districts within Hungary siding with the Austrian Empire and the Russian Empire against Hungary in exchange for improved status within the Austrian Empire. So, basically, uh, the Croatian and Bosnian and Serbian regions decided that if they couldn't be independent from Hungary, that they would at least get their own full status within the Austrian Empire. For instance, the Serb-majority district would become a full imperial district, meaning that its governor would report directly to the emperor instead of reporting to Hungary, which would in turn report to Austria. They were getting better access, is what they were getting. And during this multi-sided civil war, uh, Alexander Karadordovich actually sent Serbian troops to help, uh, to help these Serbian-majority territories. And the Hungarian Revolution is ultimately defeated. Uh, Hungary again becomes part of the Austrian Empire, and this Serbian district does indeed become a full imperial district, thanks to Karadordovic's help. But the existence of that district would sow the seeds for turmoil later on. And if you're not catching the ominous foreshadowing there, I'm talking about World War I. But for now... 
the Hungarian Revolution was put down. The Serbian people within the Austrian Empire got their own measure of independence, and Alexander Karadordovich got to claim a little bit of the credit. But he would quickly lose much of the support he had gained because of this due to his inaction in another war. See, in 1853, the Crimean War breaks out. This is initially a war between Russia and the Ottoman Empire, uh, and it's ostensibly a result of disputes over the rights of Christian pilgrims in the Holy Land. But this Cassus Belli is a little bit dubious. Uh, see, by the time Tsar Nicholas actually attacks the Ottomans, the Orthodox churches and the Ottoman government have already worked things out, and there is no longer a dispute. Uh, this was basically a land grab. Russia wanted to seize the Crimea, uh, a peninsula in the Black Sea that has also been controversial in recent years. But for a variety of reasons, the other major powers do not want to see this happen, right? The British in particular at this time were dedicated to what they called the balance of power in Europe. Right. They liked the situation as it was with France and Austria and Russia and the Ottoman Empire all more or less on an equal footing and none of them able to truly challenge the mighty British Empire on their own. But if the Russians were to control Crimea, they would be able to build a truly impressive Black Sea fleet. And this, at least the thinking went at the time, could seriously upset the balance of power in Europe. So the British and the French and most of the rest of Europe uh, joins the Ottomans against the Russians in this war. And seeing which way the winds are blowing, the Serbian Senate wants to join the war on the side of the Ottomans. They figure it would be an easy way to build some political capital with the Ottomans and also the French and the British and everybody else who's fighting against the Russians. Virtually guaranteed to win, you send a few troops over and it's your nation benefits. Alexander Karadordovich is his father's son. He is no friend to the Ottomans, and he is not willing to go to war on their behalf, and he is certainly not willing to go to war with Russia in particular, which is, after all, the historical defender of Orthodox Christians. However, at least in terms of domestic politics, this was a miscalculation on Alexander's part. Even his own party, a party called the Defenders of the Constitution that had put him in power in the first place, even they were willing to go to war against the Russians 
if it was in Serbia's best interest at the moment. And in 1856, the Crimean War would end in a Russian defeat, so those voices who had supported going to war against them were only amplified. And this situation would come to a head in December of 1858, when the Senate would force Karadordovich to abdicate. In his place, they elect none other than 75-year-old Milos Obrenovich, who returns from his exile in Austria and brings his son Mihailo along with him as an advisor. Uh, Milos immediately makes a couple of changes. First off, he severs military ties with Austria. Uh, Serbia and Austria had become closer militarily uh, after being allies in the revolutions of 1848. Milos uh, rolls that policy back, and he also sends a demand to the sultan that the sultan would recognize his position as hereditary again. But before that can happen, uh, he dies in September of 1860. But the position effectively remains hereditary for the time being. The Senate selects Mihailo as his successor, giving Mihailo, as well, a second chance at the princehood, and also keeping an Obrenovich in the palace. Now, Mihailo has grown up a lot since his forced abdication 18 years ago. Not only is he more politically savvy, but he has also become determined that his legacy is going to be true Serbian independence. He almost immediately begins laying the groundwork for this. He starts minting coins. Now, these are the first Serbian coins to be minted since the Middle Ages. While he's doing these things, he negotiates with the Ottomans, and over the course of several years, uh, one garrison after another is removed until, in 1867, the very last Ottoman troops leave Belgrade peacefully. Now all that remains, in terms of gaining independence, is making it official. So, to do that, Mihailo forms something called the First Balkan League. This is an alliance of Balkan countries planning to unite against Ottoman rule. And when I say alliances, I mean that loosely. Right? Uh, for instance, there are official secret agreements between Serbia and Greece and Montenegro that they will all rise up together. In other places, like in Macedonia and Bulgaria, Mihailo's agents are working with uh, various political parties and secret societies to try and set up government takeovers or coups. Uh, 
so they can also rise up. Uh, his spy network has even reached into uh, the only Muslim-majority country in the Balkans, uh, Albania. And there they are working with Christian dissidents to launch an uprising. And all of these backroom efforts were overseen by a man named Ilya Gerasanin, uh, who is Mihailo's prime minister. And many people consider Gerasanin to be the true architect of Mihailo's foreign policy. Uh, but achieving all of these goals, particularly the backroom diplomatic deals, uh, it requires uh, that you have a strong prince and a lot of secrecy. Well, we've already seen that the Serbian Senate does not like autocrats, and they especially don't like uh, autocrats who are secretly sending spies off to other countries all the time and won't tell anybody what they're doing. Uh, and Mihailo makes this worse by making a major error in his personal life. Uh, he tries to divorce his wife and to marry his mistress, Katerina, who is also his cousin. Now, the fact that she's his cousin is a little more shocking to us modern people than it would have been to Serbian people of the time, uh, but this is a deeply religious time and place, and the idea of the prince divorcing his wife to marry his mistress is a non-starter. Uh, there are rare public statements from Orthodox clergy in opposition to the king's plan, and Mihailo experiences a massive loss of public support. Compounding that, uh, a year after this plan comes out, this plan for the divorce, uh, in 1867, Garrisonin, this brilliant prime minister, publicly opposes the divorce as well, and Mihailo fires him. Uh, in 1868, some dissidents would act. Ironically, though, it would not be any senators or politicians or any of Mihailo's rivals. No, it would be a pair of brothers who were merchants. Uh, their brother... The third brother had falsely been accused of a crime and imprisoned, and they had appealed to Mihailo, who had failed to help them. So, on June 10th, 1868, as Mihailo is riding a carriage through a park near his country house, enjoying a quiet evening with his mistress Katerina and her mother Anka, the two brothers step out in front of the carriage, forcing it to stop, draw their pistols, and fire on the royal party at point-blank range. In addition to Mihailo, Anka is shot dead, and Katerina is badly wounded but survives. Now, interestingly, 
Mihailo's last words are supposedly, well, it's true. What's true? Right? These last words lead one to suspect that Mihailo had been warned about this plot to kill him, which in turn has caused historians both at the time and to the present day to question whether these two brothers really were acting alone, right? Were they really upset about their brother being in prison? I mean, to the extent that they were willing to assassinate the prince? How did they know that Mihailo was going to be riding his carriage in the park at that particular time? There are allegations that senators and even friends of the Karadordovich family were involved in this assassination. But to this day, nothing has been proven, and neither of the brothers themselves admitted any sort of conspiracy during their trial. So, officially, to this day, they acted alone. Now, almost immediately, the former Prime Minister, Elijah Garrisonen, briefly tries to start his own dynasty. He believes he has the support of the army. But there's another government minister, a man named Milivoje Petrovic Blaznovak, and he launches a coup. Officers loyal to him uh, remove Ilya Garrisonen's people from power, and uh, Blaznovak declares Mihailo's 14-year-old nephew, uh, named Milan, to be the new prince. Now, the brilliance of this here is that Milan is not yet of age, so until he comes of age, Serbia needs to be ruled by somebody else, and what better than a three-man regency council headed up by Blaznovak? So he is now basically in charge of the country, at least until Milan comes of age. But what has happened here, mostly unknown to most of the people involved until later, is that what they have done is destroyed the First Balkan League. The death of Mihailo and the ouster of Garrisonen pretty much make it impossible for the League to function, and it collapses. Um, young Milan does not have an easy time even before coming of age. Uh, there are a couple of attempts on his life. At one point, a bomb is exploded uh, yards away as he exits a theater, uh, but he's unharmed. Uh, and shortly after that incident, while he's still shaken up, He's uh, using an outhouse when the floor collapses underneath him, and he has to fire his pistol in the air to attract his bodyguard's attention. And there are allegations, even to this day, that the floor of that outhouse might have been intentionally weakened with acid or something that seems like kind of a silly way to try and assassinate someone. I mean, it's smelly and embarrassing, but... As far as we could tell, Milan was unhurt from the incident, and eventually he would survive to come of age. What is possibly more surprising is that Milan Obrenovich would 
ultimately fulfill his uncle Mihailo's dream of complete Serbian independence, and that there would actually be a pan-Balkan war that led to this. You see, Russia has been humiliated by the Crimean War, and the Tsar believes, probably correctly, that had Great Britain and France and the other powers not jumped in on the Ottoman side, Russia would have won that war, and easily. So, the Tsar is waiting for a chance to take his revenge. And Austria, right, the other one of those empires that surrounds the Balkans, well, Austria's been weakened by the rise of another European power. Bismarck's Germany. See, in 1871, the powerful German state of Prussia had officially joined with several other smaller principalities and created one unified country, the Kingdom of Germany. Austria was no longer the most powerful country in Germany. There was an actual Germany to have that role. That is no longer a mantle that Austria can claim, and that has not only weakened them in a tangible sense, but also uh, in a prestige sense as well. And the Ottomans of these three powers, you might be expecting to do the best, right? They won the Crimean War, and they're not dealing with the rise of another power in their backyard the way Austria is, but the Ottoman government is having all kinds of trouble during this time period. Remember, we started out today talking a lot about the Janissaries. Well, the whole Ottoman military system had been held up by the Janissaries. It had relied for too long overly reliant on infantry and not on the artillery and the cavalry and the other wings of 19th century warfare. And when you're that far behind in 1826, when you finally get rid of the Janissaries, you have some catching up to do. And that has been very expensive. And while the Ottomans won the Crimean War, it came at great cost to their treasury. And in the early 1870s, while they are still paying back the enormous debts from this war, there's a famine in Anatolia. This famine is the last straw for the Ottoman government. The Sultan is forced to declare bankruptcy in 1875. And this forces them to raise taxes across the board uh, to an extreme level. And it is less than a year before the first provincial revolts break out. And of course, these revolts are in the Balkans. 
the Herzegovinians and the Bulgarians, peoples to the east and west of the Serbians, both launch revolts against the Ottomans. And more Serbs revolt, too. The Principality of Serbia does not encompass all Serb-majority land. There are large chunks of Serb-majority territory still in the Ottoman Empire proper. And the Senate, or at least many elements in the Senate, want to aid them. But Milan refuses, not wishing to go to war with the Ottomans. Although the Karadordoviks and some of the individual other families do send arms and supplies to these Serbian rebels. And the Ottoman army responds with extreme brutality across the board. And when we think about extreme acts of evil on a wide scale, if we're not thinking about the Nazis, we're usually thinking about, you know, something from the Middle Ages or the ancient past or something, but what happened during these Ottoman reprisals belongs right up there with any of the great atrocities of history. And we know this because we have first-hand accounts here is one such account, the most famous, uh, as written by an American journalist named J.A. McGann. McGann had the opportunity to visit a Bulgarian village called Batak, and he went there several days after the Ottoman army had paid the village a visit. What I am about to read is disturbing, and it's also fairly long, but it's only a small fraction of McGann's entire report. Here's what he has to say. Quote, at last we came to a little plateau or shelf on the hillside, where the ground was nearly level, with the exception of a little indentation where the head of a hollow broke through. We rode toward this with the intention of crossing it, but all suddenly drew rein with an exclamation of horror, for right before us, almost beneath our horses' feet, was a sight that made us shudder. It was a heap of skulls, intermingled with bones from all parts of the human body, Skeletons nearly entire and rotting, clothing, human hair, and putrid flesh lying there in one foul heap, around which the grass was growing luxuriantly. It emitted a sickening odor, like that of a dead horse, and it was here that the dogs had been seeking a hasty repast when our untimely approach interrupted them. In the midst of this heap, I could distinguish the slight skeleton form, still enclosed in a chemise, the skull wrapped about with a colored handkerchief, and the bony ankles enclosed in the embroidered footless stockings worn by Bulgarian girls. We looked about us. 
The ground was strewed with bones in every direction where the dogs had carried them off to gnaw them at their leisure. At the distance of a hundred yards beneath us lay the town. As seen from our standpoint, it reminded one somewhat of the ruins of Herculaneum and Pompeii. There was not a roof left, not a whole wall standing. It was a mass of ruins from which arose as we listened a low plaintive wail, like the keening of the Irish over their dead, that filled the little valley and gave it voice. We had the explanation of this curious sound when we afterwards descended into the village. We looked again at the heap of skulls and skeletons before us, and we observed that they were all small, and that the articles of clothing intermingled with them and lying about were all women's apparel. These, then, were all women and girls. From my saddle I counted about a hundred skulls, not including those that were hidden beneath the others in the ghastly heap, nor those that were scattered far and wide through the fields. The skulls were nearly all separated from the rest of the bones. The skeletons were nearly all headless. These women had all been beheaded. We descended into the town. Within the shattered walls of the first house we came to was a woman sitting upon a heap of rubbish rocking herself to and fro, wailing a kind of monotonous chant, half sung, half sobbed, that was not without a wild discordant melody. In her lap she held a babe, and another child sat beside her patiently and silently, and looked at us as we passed with wondering eyes. She paid no attention to us, but we bent our ear to hear what she was saying, and our interpreter said it was as follows. My home, my home, my poor home, my sweet home, my husband, my husband, my dear husband, my poor husband, my home, my sweet home, and so on, repeating the same words over again a thousand times. In the next house were two engaged in a similar way, one old, the other young, repeating words nearly identical. I had a home, now I have none. I had a husband, now I am a widow. I had a son, and now I have none. I had five children, and now I have one. While rocking themselves to and fro, beating their heads and wringing their hands. These were women who had escaped from the massacre, and who had only just returned for the first time having taken advantage of our visit or that of Mr. Baring to do so. They might have returned long ago, but their terror was so great that they had not dared without the presence and protection of a foreigner. As we proceeded, most of them fell into line behind us, and they finally formed a procession of four or five hundred people, mostly women and children, who followed us about wherever we went with their mournful cries. Such a sound as their united voices sent up to heaven, I hope never to hear again. Unquote. And then, a minute later, McGann and his party reach the center of town, where the churchyard is, and he continues, quote, We entered the churchyard. But the odor here became so bad that it was almost impossible to proceed. We take a handful of tobacco and hold it to our noses while we continue our investigation. The church was not a very large one, and it was surrounded by a low stone wall, 
enclosing a small churchyard about 50 yards wide by 75 long. At first we perceive nothing in particular, and the stench was so great that we scarcely care to look about us, but we see that the place is heaped up with stones and rubbish to the height of five or six feet above the level of that of the street and upon inspection we discover that what appeared to be a mass of stones and rubbish is in reality an immense heap of human bodies covered over with a thin layer of stones. The whole of the little churchyard is heaped up with them to the depth of three or four feet, and it is from here that the fearful odor comes. Some weeks after the massacre, orders were sent to bury the dead but the stench at that time had become so deadly that it was impossible to execute the order, or even to remain in the neighborhood of the village. The men sent to perform the work contented themselves with burying a few bodies, throwing a little earth over others as they lay, and here in the churchyard they had tried to cover this immense heap of festering humanity by throwing in stones and rubbish over the walls, without daring to enter. They had only partially succeeded. The dogs had been at work there since, and now could be seen projecting from this monster grave heads, arms, feet, legs, and hands in horrid confusion. We were told there were three thousand people lying here in this little churchyard alone, and we could well believe it. It was a fearful sight, a sight to haunt one through life. There were little curly heads there in that festering mass, crushed down by heavy stones. Little feet, not as long as your finger. Unquote. McGann's report, first published in a London newspaper, arouses widespread public outrage throughout Europe. And Russia now has all the diplomatic cover she needs to go to war with the Ottomans as the defender of the Slavs. And Russia is not the only one who wants a piece of the action. The Austrian, Prussian, and Russian representatives all meet in Bohemia, and they reach a handshake deal where the Austrians will get involved as well. They're going to seize Croatia and Bosnia-Herzegovina. These are Ottoman territories that are roughly to the west of Serbia, and uh, Russia will be taking some territory in the Caucasus and along the Black Sea, some of that Black Sea land that they'd really wanted back in the Crimean War. Uh, and what is not stated in this handshake deal between the great powers, but what's understood is that Russia is also intending to unite and at least liberate the other Orthodox Slavic people in the Balkans. Uh, the Tsar's long-term goal is to eventually bring all of these Slavic lands into the Russian Empire, but you know, for right now, if he can just you know, chip a few of them away from the Ottomans, well, that would be really good from Russia's perspective. Um, and while... All of this is going on from the great powers. Little Serbia has already acted. On June 30th, 1876, Serbia officially declares war with the Ottoman Empire. Uh, 
They're aided almost immediately by Russian volunteers as well as some material. Official help is slower in coming, and for right now, the Serbs are unable to make any real advances against the Ottomans. But the Ottomans are suffering some serious setbacks uh, just a little ways to the west in Croatia, uh, where the Austrians are slowly digging into that territory and the Russians haven't even officially declared war yet, so the Sultan now realizes that any type of peace he can make with anybody in this situation is going to be a good idea. So, in 1877, in February, uh, Serbia and the Ottoman Empire agree to a peace. The Sultan could use a peaceful spot anywhere in the Balkans, and the Serbians were not making any progress anyway, uh, so it made sense uh, to make peace. But things would change again quickly. In just two months, in April of that year, uh, of 1777, the Russians asked permission from the Prince of Romania to attack the Ottomans via Romania in the Balkans. Romania agrees, and being a principality, a semi-autonomous Ottoman principality, much like Serbia, as soon as the first Russian troops begin marching through Romania, the Prince of Romania declares independence from the Ottoman Empire. Uh, in response to this, the Turks shell a number of Romanian towns with artillery, but they don't uh, launch any military offensives at that time. Uh, the reason being that they expect the Russian army to advance along the Black Sea coast. After all, in the Crimean War, the Russians had mostly been interested in territory in the Black Sea area, uh, and the Black Sea coast is also uh, the most friendly terrain for moving an army across, right? You don't have the rivers and mountains that you have uh, inland in the Balkans. Uh, but what you also had was a line of heavily fortified Ottoman forts along the Black Sea coast. Uh, what the Russians wouldn't have to deal with in the interior was all of that. As a matter of fact, the route from Romania into the Ottoman interior was only defended by one fort. So as soon as the first Russian soldiers cross the Danube, they then mine the river uh, so that Ottoman ships can't come up the river from the Black Sea and stop them, and the Russians are then simply able to move across Romania over land into the Ottoman Empire into undefended land, which means that the Russians make some gains very quickly. And in September of 1877, only seven months after making peace, the Serbians again declare war on the Ottomans. And this time around, the Serbian revolt is much more successful. With 
all of these countries on the same side, the Ottomans ultimately have to negotiate. And a treaty is signed in 1878 at the Congress of Berlin. As the name implies, this peace conference took place in Berlin. It was actually mediated uh, by Bismarck, the famous German statesman, one of his greatest achievements. And as a result of the Congress of Berlin, the countries of Serbia, Bulgaria, Romania, and Montenegro all became fully independent of the Ottoman Empire. Not only that, but Bosnia and Herzegovina were annexed by Austria, and the Russians got some of that territory they wanted around the Black Sea. All of this came at the expense of an already weakening Ottoman Empire, a nation which was already being called the sick man of Europe. And in addition to weakening the Ottomans, it also resulted in some net gains for the Serbs. If you remember, the whole reason Serbia got involved in this war wasn't even technically to gain full independence. It was to support those Serbian people in the Serbian-majority areas that were revolting against the Ottomans, right? Well, a lot of those Serbian-majority territories were now transferred to Serbia, joined them in their independence. Well, in 1882, Prince Milan decided that a fully independent country shouldn't just be a princedom, and Serbia became the Kingdom of Serbia, and Milan Obrenovic became the first king of Serbia since the Middle Ages. You might think After these kinds of accomplishments, Milan would have settled down and had a long and successful reign due to his deep and abiding popularity with the Serbian people. I mean, how could he possibly do anything at this point to turn the country against him, right? Well, in 1885, he got greedy. See, Milan decides that he's going to take some more majority Serbian territory, and that this time that territory is going to come at the expense of Bulgaria, a country that lies to the east of Serbia, and he invades. Well, what was supposed to be a quick and easy land grab turned into a disaster. See, not only does this invasion fail, but the Bulgarian counter-invasion penetrates deep into Serbia. It looks like Serbia is actually going to have to give some land to Bulgaria here until Austria threatens to intervene on Serbia's behalf, which causes Bulgaria to accept peace uh, as it stood before the war. This debacle causes King Milan to lose most of the popularity he had rightfully earned by gaining Serbia's independence. And a couple of years later, in 1888, his party loses the Senate election. 
in the opposing party, the People's Radical Party, comes to power. They draft a new constitution. And when that is passed, Milan resigns in protest in early 1889. But he doesn't really quite give up power yet. Uh, you see, he's succeeded by his 13-year-old son, Alexander. We've already seen this trick before. Milan acts as Alexander's regent for the next four years until Alexander comes of age in 1893. Now, historically, Russia has been the Serbs' greatest ally, at least most consistently, but during young Alexander's life, uh, Austria has been very helpful to Serbia, right? They helped win uh, that war against the Ottomans, where all of these Balkan countries got independence. Uh, the Austrians helped again uh, when Bulgaria was on the march against them. Well, if you're young Alexander, you might see the Austrians as your closest friend. Well, this makes him unpopular with the army. Uh, the army still prefers to not be too overly reliant on any one of the great powers. But that alone is not enough to cause Alexander to be in any kind of danger. For one thing, the economy is booming. Uh, we talked about the Serbian populations in both Austria and you know some of them still remaining in the Ottoman Empire. Well, these people outside of Serbia want to be inside of Serbia. So you see, during this time period, a ton of migration uh, of ethnic Serbs into the kingdom of Serbia. Uh, and this is fueling the economy to the point where it is uh, one of the most dynamic in Eastern Europe. And for a few years, it really seems like Alexander can do no wrong. But in 1900, he makes a blunder that will ultimately prove fatal. He announces his engagement to a woman named Draga Masin. Now, Draga herself is nobody terribly important. She's the widow of an engineer who himself was not very well known, uh, and this is part of the reason that some of the nobility and the Senate have a problem with the match. At these times, it would have been preferable if she were you know, somebody important, preferably of noble blood. But at the same time, Serbian society is more egalitarian than most of Europe at this time. And the fact that Draga is not of noble blood would not itself be an insuperable obstacle. The bigger problem is that she's 10 years older than Alexander, she has a reputation for sleeping around, and she's rumored to be sterile. This last point is particularly problematic because Alexander is the last Obrenovich. He needs an heir if the Obrenovich dynasty is going to continue. That's not going to happen if he marries a sterile woman. For a time after 
he announces the marriage, even top army officers who are loyal to him are refusing to take posts in his government out of protest. Um, A year later, in 1901, Alexander tries to rehabilitate his image somewhat by adopting a more liberal constitution. Most importantly, there is now a bicameral legislature, a two-chamber legislature, right? uh, a, a Senate and a, and, a, uh, and a House, so to speak. Uh, but he shoots himself in the foot. See, a couple years later in 1903, Alexander has a dispute with some senators and suspends the Constitution for half an hour, just long enough to fire the senators who were causing him trouble. Well, this act leaves him unpopular with both the liberals and the conservatives in equal measure. Right? The conservatives were not happy about him adopting this Constitution. Well, now the liberals are not upset about him suspending the Constitution when it doesn't suit his interests. Uh, And now that he's politically weakened, Alexander is vulnerable to the army, right? The army that was not thrilled with him before but couldn't touch him for political reasons. Now King Alexander, between his unpopular marriage and his fooling around with the Constitution, he has become touchable. And starting in 1901, army officers have already begun plotting against King Alexander. Among others, uh, they were led by a man named Dragutin Dimitrovic. Uh, Dimitrovic was a young captain and he was often known by his nickname, Apis, after the Egyptian bull god, uh, because of his physique. Uh, this group of officers led by Apis called themselves the Black Hand. The Black Hand was originally an ad hoc group that joined for the purpose of launching a coup against Alexander. But as time went on in the future, it would develop into a secret society of its own, with rituals and initiations, and as we'll see, a great deal of real power. For now, their particular grievance, the incident that caused them to get together, was that Alexander and Draga had gotten caught faking a pregnancy. This was scandalous. Uh, it was also difficult to say what exactly their end game was going to be uh, if they hadn't gotten caught, if they were just going to secretly adopt a child. Uh, we don't really know. But this fake pregnancy was ineptly pulled off, and they got caught. And Draga had a younger brother, a man named Nikola Lunjevica. And Nikola was a lieutenant in the army. 
And when this fake pregnancy came out, he started bragging that he would one day be king. Already known as a lazy officer, he started completely ignoring his duties, uh, acting out while drunk, and uh, he actually uh, shot a policeman during an argument, and because of his status as the king's brother-in-law faced no consequences, and it was Lunjavika's behavior in particular that was abhorrent to Apis and the members of Black Hand. He was giving the army a bad name, and the king was going to stand by and watch this happen, and as it turned out, it was looking like Lunjavika might just end up being the heir, which would have been disastrous for Serbia. Now, in retrospect, it is amazing that the Black Hand conspirators never got caught. They were pretty careless and open about what they were doing. For instance, they sent civilian representatives to back-channel contacts in Austria and Russia to feel out whether either of those countries would try and nominate their own replacement or get involved if the king were to just suddenly die. Turns out, neither of those countries uh, had a uh, noble candidate on deck for the Serbian throne, so uh, they were not likely to succeed if something were to happen to the king. In addition to sending out all these feelers, uh, Black Hand also had several failed attempts on Alexander's life to the point where there are rumors in public that somebody's trying to kill the king. Uh, some of the officers are even brought up on charges by the military, but none of them can be convicted because there's no actual evidence. Uh, but when this happens, uh, Apis and the other leaders realize that it's now or never. They're going to get caught if they don't do this. Uh, so they recruit a member of the Royal Guard to let them into the palace. And this is one of those truly delicious, ironic moments in history. If you remember when Caridord, the original Serbian founding father, was killed and beheaded, he had a bodyguard with him, the man named Nom Kanar, who was shot in the back while collecting water. And if you remember, all of this was done on the order of Milos Obrenovic, the other Serbian founding father, whose dynasty is even now sitting on the throne. Well, there's a lieutenant colonel in the Royal Guard by the name of Mihailo Nomovic, and Mihailo Nomovic is none other than the grandson of Nom Kanar, that bodyguard. And he is more than happy to let the Black Hand conspirators into the palace in the middle of the night. The ghost of Nom Kanar, so to speak, is coming back to haunt the Obrenovich dynasty. On the night of May 28, 1903, 
the conspirators stealthily surround the royal palace. They also surround the prime minister's residence, the home of the army minister, few other important people, and they wait for a signal. And at 2 a.m., Lieutenant Colonel Nomovich opens the palace doors. And the conspirators enter and begin a frantic search. See, most of the Royal Guard aren't in on the coup. Just Lieutenant Colonel Nomovich and a few others, but the conspirators are counting on confusion and speed to throw off all the guards for long enough to kill the king, at which point mission accomplished. But they can't find the king. Uh, For one thing, his bedroom door is really heavy and it's barred. They have to go get dynamite and dynamite the door to blow the door open, and inside, they don't find the king. They find his aide-de-camp, General Lazar Petrovich. So they threaten to kill him if he doesn't reveal the king's location. They give Petrovich ten minutes and put a gun to his head, and as he is calmly waiting for his time to expire, uh, some of the conspirators find a secret door hidden behind Draga's vanity mirror in the bedchamber. And they open it out, and inside are Alexander and Draga. Now, there are a few different accounts of how exactly this happened. Some say that uh, Alexander wouldn't come out at first, and had to be tricked into coming out, but ultimately the two are brought out into the bedchambers, and a artillery officer draws his pistol, and along with two other men, shoots them dead. Again, the accounts vary here. Some stories say they were killed together. Uh, One particularly colorful story says that Draga jumped in front of Alexander, and he survived and was thrown out the window and tried to hang from the windowsill, and his hand was chopped off. Uh, We do know that the bodies were thrown out the window. Uh, Whether or not they were alive or dead when thrown uh, is tough to say, but the Obrenovich dynasty is no more. Alexander was the last, and he is dead. And on this same night, the rest of the administration is also eliminated. Prime Minister General Dmitry Sinkar Markovich is killed. The Minister of the Army is killed, both of them and their homes. And Draga's brothers, she actually has two, both of them are in the military, both of them are arrested and shot by firing squad. An interim government would form, and in true Serbian style, if it's not an Obrenovich, it has to be a Karadordovich. The Senate elects Peter Karadordovich, the grandson of Karadord, and the son of Alexander Karadordovich as their new king. During his reign, he would promote many social reforms. Uh, both in terms of civil and political liberties, as well as in expanding the economy. Uh, 
he is now known as Peter the Liberator. But Peter Karadordovich, Peter the Liberator, would also be the last king of Serbia. And while his domestic agenda would be bold and popular, he would exercise almost no influence over Serbia's foreign policy. That would be left to the military, primarily to the Black Hand. This would have disastrous results, not just for Serbia, but for the world. We'll talk about that in part two of For the Honor of Belgrade. Just a reminder, if you want to get in touch with me, you can always reach the show at at Dan Toller Podcast on Twitter. That's D-A-N-T-O-L-E-R Podcast on Twitter. And you can also find me at Dan Toller, that's T-O-L-E-R, on Facebook. In addition to that, if you want to send an email to the show, whether to give some input or request a different topic... Go ahead and shoot me a line at dantollerpodcast at gmail.com. Once again, that's dan, T-O-L-E-R, podcast at gmail.com. If you just stumbled across this episode and you'd like to find more episodes, they're available on just about every podcast service. You can find relevant history on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Deezer, iHeartRadio, Podbean, and several others. Just search for Relevant History. That's R-E-L-E-V-A-N-T, History. And if you happen to prefer YouTube, the show is on there well. Just don't expect any fancy videos. Finally, if you'd like to keep up with my blog, which may or may not ever be updated, you can find the show at dantollerpodcast.com. That's dan, T-O-L-E-R, podcast.com. Thanks.